We're now live. Apparently, I'm back from Instagram jail from my phone for the Strength and Success podcast, episode 23, Focus on What Matters. And this is Riley Presnell, and I'm making sure I introduce her as quick as possible because I know how to focus on what matters. <laughs> Those of you who are joining us live, remember you can ask questions on here. We'll answer questions we got on here and questions that we got throughout the week within our story or people have sent us randomly and so forth. Uh, we have some interesting questions. How are you? I'm great. How are you? You're great. Is it because you had a bench PR? It, okay, so I, I'm not proud of it because it's only... <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> I bench... I hit a bench bear. I'm not proud of it. It's, it's on incline, and I'm not very good at incline. So I feel like I'm like, you know, millions of miles behind where I should be for incline. But I did hit a technical rep PR on incline today. A technical rep PR on incline, which is the lift that you struggle with, which means you're making progress on your bench. It is the hardest variation for me. <laughs> it is so unnecessarily hard for me. I don't understand. It could be worse. It could be any bench variation is the hardest variation for me. <laughs> Mr. Longarm Problems. Uh, so welcome, you guys. Welcome back. We're on our normal time. We're on our normal channel on, on, the, uh, on my page on, for the Instagram. This is episode 23, Focus on What Matters. Um, this is huge. We deal with this every day as coaches, someone comparing themselves to others. And when I think about this from a sports perspective, bear with me for a second. This is a little long-winded. I think of racehorses. Racehorses are forced to put blinders on so they can't see what the horse next to them is doing. And they're only focused on their one objection, objective, which is to run as fast as they can forward. And when a racehorse performs well, it's then put out to stud and it makes a ton of money. And if its kids do well, it's charged even double. So it gets paid the bone and bang all the time because it focuses on what matters, which is making progress, running forward, moving straight ahead as fast as you can, doing whatever you can to win. And I'm not telling you you have to be a winner. That's something you choose to do or you don't choose to do, whatever you do in life. But it just goes to show you that when you have a very myopic focus, which is very narrow-sided focus on the tasks that you have to do, you're probably going to succeed. Any distraction from that focus is going to take you away from how much success you have. It doesn't matter what lifter A is doing or lifter B is doing. I'm throwing that out there just because fun because people get pretty pissed about that. But it doesn't matter what anybody else is doing if it doesn't affect what you can do or what you should be doing. Yeah, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of comparison that happens in everyone's lifts and like you can have i i see this most often is like well we're kind of built the same so shouldn't i lift the same no you can be the same height as you can be like the same height as someone the same weight as someone everything but your proportions and leverages are going to be different so with the first thing that you're asking is well i'll or the first thing you're saying is like i'll do what you do that's probably not going to work um right. so that's not focusing on what matters for you and then, you know, like a lot of the times I put up a Q&A or someone will put up a question about uh, some powerlifting drama. And they're like, what do you think about this? I'm like, I don't because okay. it doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, it, has nothing, shit to me. it has nothing to do with me or anything that I'm doing. If it's not affecting my income, if it's not affecting my relationship, if it's not affecting my training, if it's not affecting any of those things, I generally don't care about it. And I don't mean that in like a rude kind of way, but it, it's... It doesn't matter it's to me, so I'm not going to focus. It's not to your progress. Yeah. It's not important to your goal. And the more energy you put towards that, the less you have to put towards yourself. Yep. And it's like um, most people see this where they get really uh, drained from like their work day. You know, like they maybe they have like a very toxic like work environment or they have a very toxic friendship or partnership or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And they're just emotionally drained all the time. And it makes it really, really hard to have that motivation and drive to do what it is that you need to do for yourself. So when you're in these toxic situations, you're always like, man, I'm too tired. I don't really feel like meal prepping or I don't really feel like pushing myself that hard or I don't really feel like 
doing this thing that's going to get me to this goal that I have because you're emotionally drained all the time because you're focusing on things that aren't helping you because you're in sort of like a toxic environment. So changing those sort of um, environments and behaviors can really help you get that leg up to actually like achieve the things that you want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, when I stopped focusing on people that were only making me feel negative, I got a lot better. Um, like I stopped, I stopped inviting like negative behaviors and people into my life and things grew. My business grew, my relationships got better, my friendships got better. I appreciate um, that second one. Thank you. <laughs> but why is it plural? Relationships. Well, I was also talking about like friendships. So stuff. progressive. I'm <laughs> ah, just kidding. Um, I'm, I'm reading a book on self-control. I'm a slow reader, which believe it or not. But um, it, one of the things he actually talks about that is called attention fatigue. Mm-hmm. And he's talking about all these scientific studies when people will do like hard anagrams or puzzles, how their self-control after that would be really, really poor because they were so attention fatigued from the hard task and thinking task. So we always talk about and joke about it being efficient, not lazy. Mm-hmm. And the more efficient in the process we can be, the less attention fatigued we will be, yep. the more likely we are to demonstrate and have that self-control and be able to focus on our goals, on our progress and what we want to accomplish because we've narrowed our scope. We've narrowed our sight. I have no idea why the screen went black there. I hope you guys are still on here and I hope it's also recording. <laughs> These Instagram updates will get you. So I'll keep active on that. Zach joined. We're going to actually gonna record Zach's podcast. Um, I think it's been rebranded. It was Chalk and Iron, or sorry, Chalk Zone Powerlifting. I know it's been rebranded. If you want to drop the name on there, Zach, you can on the screen there. We'll be recording that on Friday, tomorrow. Yep, tomorrow. So that's fun. I always like to talk to different people and do different things. But uh, we're going to get to the questions you guys asked. Don't forget, you can ask questions here. So what is your preferred style of wrapping for yourself or this clients? Is, um, this is the one who asked about handling for the surge meat that you offered to wrap. For. Ah, oh, so this is really opportune right now because somebody asked me if I would assist them at the surge meat on the amateur day since I'll be competing on the Saturday. I can on the Sunday and I have no problem doing so. Um, this matters on what your preferred style of wraps are. And I understand they're new to you, but if I went and wrapped you my preferred style and you've never experienced that, it could really throw off your squat pattern on game day. So one of the things I asked Riley, because you messaged her, was to film how you are being wrapped and how you like being wrapped so I can mimic that for you on game day. There are different wrap styles. Uh, you're gonna experiment with them because you're, you're new to wraps, but obviously you're gonna try like an X over the knee or straight up and straight down. You know, for most beginners, the simplest wrap is the best wrap when they're first learning, which is usually like four up, four down kind of thing or vice versa. Um, getting complex into double crossing over the knee or trying to avoid behind the knee and stuff like that is something that comes after. You want to experience the feel of the tension first and then try and work on creating more spring or more rebound because you have to know what it feels like to have that tight compression wrap on and as well as hit depth and get the proprioception, the kinesthetic awareness of that wrap first. And I know you're new to wraps. So I do have a couple different videos on different wrap styles. Uh, way back, there's a straight up and down. I call it the Skinner wrap. Jared Skinner was a big proponent of this. He liked to go like four straight down, four straight up, and basically just two covers all the way around, but it doesn't obstruct depth for most people. It's a really simple style to learn. You can get more complex from there. Depending upon what kind of squatter you are, wider stance squatters tend to do better with a casting wrap. Narrower squatters tend to do better more of a spring wrap because if you have a cast wrap and you squat narrow, getting to depth is gonna be really difficult. So that's a personal preference of what you choose to use, but make sure you then film how you like being wrapped before I get there so I can practice wrapping you day before or morning of to make sure it's adequate for you. Yeah, I don't like wraps. <laughs> I don't think I can ever go back to wraps again with my missing adductor. So what do you do to the clients that you strap? Brandon, I haven't got to my Instagram messages yet. I saw that you had no chalk today in the gym and you had to use straps. Um, I publicly shamed them. So Brandon is weak <laughs> for having bitch mittens. Uh, <laughs> listen, 
If the gym has no chalk and you're having a hard time holding the bar, by all means strap up. I'd rather have quality productive work. If you're using straps just to add more weight to the bar because you think it's gonna look cooler, that's when I'll probably shame you and call you out for being a, you know, a pussy. Because you know, in the meat, we can't use straps. And if you have a weak grip because you're always using straps, there's no one to blame. I know people will sometimes blame the humidity or blame the knurling on the bar. Mm-hmm. No, you taught yourself to have bitch mittens because you use straps all the time. Tough it up, let your hands bleed. My thumbs are chronically black and blue. I don't care. This is the sport we've chosen. Her thumbs rip every week, every literally week. every week. Um, I think that the only time that I've used straps was actually this week, and I'm worse with straps because I never use them. The only time that I'm over, ever okay with someone using straps from the get-go is for snatch grip Yep. Um, because I do want that one to be heavier so that way it trains the back, not necessarily just the grip. But honestly, like I have a lot of people that try to transition to hook grip, and they're like, well, when should I use straps when I'm learning hook grip? And I'm like, no, you should just hook grip everything because it's going to feel... It's, you're going to get used to how bad it feels basically. And then it's not going to feel bad at all. Like I remember there was a whole block where I had eights for like five weeks in a row. And every single week, uh, my three sets of eight, I went completely hooked, no straps because that's how you condition your thumbs. Yeah. Like they're, they're, they'll stop ripping the more that you get used to the pain. It, it also never teaches stops you patience yeah. off the floor. If you're just jerking off the floor and you don't have a good set hook and good set position, yeah, it's going to tear. Yeah. And everyone that uses straps that also pulls hook grip, they generally can get longer with the straps so it's a shorter range of motion they're like oh well, why can i pull pull 40 or 50 pounds more with the straps i'm like well because you're not actually they using your hands hang, yeah. they let it hang this so. becomes a block pull and sumo which is cheating yeah all so. right so zach said it's called chalk zone parallel thing will be called brute strength performance soon i believe that's a podcast with him and logan chapman so we'll be joining that so check those out check out the brute strength i know they're gonna have some templates too all right can you elaborate on the question i asked in stories when and why would you use ascending reps no i am kidding uh isaiah had asked when and why would you use ascending sets and reps and load uh and i said when you're looking to accumulate volume with certain intensities so for some people straight sets straight sets would be like four sets of four at 80 percent versus other things which is you know wave loading or ascending sets so let's say you might have a set of two a set of three a set of four a set of five whatever with descending or ascending loads it can go the opposite way Usually you're going to do that when you want to acquire a certain amount of volume at certain percentages. It's a little bit easier to do that than just having four sets of four. Um, I'll let you know a little secret. I cannot do four sets of four at 80% because I have attention fatigue. So I will tend to do like 77%, 79%, 80%, 82%. Like I'll add like two and a half or five pounds starting below my prescribed weight and ending up a little bit above, but it averages out to the prescribed weight because I can't do the same number for four sets. Uh, I'm neurotic that way. It just drives me up a wall to do the same thing over and over again. So I will mix that up. But one of the best ways to use ascending sets is ascending the reps, not necessarily the Mm. load. And that's great for when you're trying to add hypertrophy phases or volume phases. I actually do this a lot with like Jordan Wong right now. Uh, He loves high rep squat sets. They built his squat tremendously. So I've put ascending belt squat sets in there where he has like a set of eight a set of 10, a set of 12, a set of 15. So he keeps actually stripping a little bit of weight off the bar and getting more and more and more reps to build that muscular endurance and muscular size in his legs with the belt squat. I probably wouldn't do it with the competition lift because that's a lot of sets and reps Mm -hmm. to put on your back and shoulders when you're doing like a low bar squat. But if you're using a specialty bar that takes that pressure off, like an SSB or Cambridge bar, by all means, go ahead and do that because you're gonna build the torso endurance. But I prefer to do ascending reps than ascending load 
for most like prescribed set for volume phases? If anything, I will do most of the ascending work throughout the block on accessory movements. And that'll either be reps or sets. So right. if it's like a three by five week one, I may change it to like a four by six week two, and then a five by eight week three or something along those lines to get more, uh, more in there for beginners with like building muscle um, with the accessories. But yeah, I don't, I don't necessarily use a whole lot of ascending sets for the main work. Yeah, if anything with the main work, I'll descending. use descending, yeah. not ascending. So it'll, it'll be like a set of five, a set of three, a set of one kind of thing with increasing loads. You made a good point. It's not necessarily related to this, but you made a good point in here talking about how if you're programmed a four by four at a certain percentage that you will do like 77 and a half, 79, 82, blah, blah, blah. I get that question a lot when I, when I program like RIR, RPE, yep. where they'll be like, well, my first set was the RIR two, but then by the third set, it's like an RIR one or an RIR zero. Am I allowed to like pull weight off yes. or add weight? And I'm like, yes, question. because in the, it ends up all averaging out. So if set one is an RIR two, but your last set is a zero and you're aiming for a one, that's going to average out because you hit a two and you hit a zero. That kind of brings up the point of velocity-based training, and that's where it faults for the power lifter is they will stop when the velocity declines. But if you lower the load, you can match the velocity. Yep. So that's where it goes wrong with a lot of trainers. Like, okay, my velocity dip, I'm going to stop. Yep. But you could still go if you lower the load 2 or 3% and have the same velocity. Mm -hmm. So you can do that with the RPE or the RRI. If you have five sets of two and it's supposed to be like an RPE eight, and the first set's an RPE 8, the second set's an RPE 8, but the third set starts being like 8.59, take a little load off the bar, keep the same speed, and keep the, the RPE. Not all eight sets are going to be, I'm sorry, not all five sets are going to be an RPE 8 at the same load. Uh, if you can, great, good on you. Most people can't do that. It's eventually fatigue gets you a little bit, so you taper back so you can keep the same speed. I think that happened to me on deadlifts last week to where like my first like top set was supposed to be like an RPE 8. And what I thought was going to be an eight ended up being like more like a seven. Right. So then I added more weight and that second set ended up being like a nine. So between the, <laughs> we so met between the, the two, I found yeah. the eight. That's not saying that you should overshoot right. it's, every it's single It's an average. Week, but yeah. yeah. It, it's going to be an average. You can't be exact all the mm -hmm. time, you know, unless you're a dope dealer. And then, you know, you get your triple beam scale out and you're good to go. But uh, you, you want to find that average. The sum of all your averages is what's going to add up to your results. It's never going to be nitpicking. And people will, I, I laugh when someone breaks out like, the fishing scale to get the exact amount of band tension to make sure it's within 1% of what it's supposed to be like, dude, who cares? You either moved the weight fast or you didn't. And that's also, what it's supposed it, to be. It only added three ounces to yeah. your lift. Latex only added three ounces. That's all you got from the latex. <laughs> <laughs> Brandon's laughing. All right. Oh, wait, I hit a button. Oh, good. I'm so terrible with technology. I am sorry. Let me just scroll down and see if there's more questions. All right. Interested on taking weight off for RPE goals and such? Thank you. Oh, that's a comment, not a question. All right, so there we go. So you guys can ask more questions around there. We have some stock ones. Let's see what we got. Okay, I got a couple in my DMs um, that are a little bit longer, so we'll read those off next. Uh, one of the questions is, I have a question for the podcast. I have a friend who has been undermining my success in training and in life. I think this speaks more to their insecurities in themselves than it does me. Have you experienced this, and how have you dealt with this? First and foremost... You don't have a friend. Yeah. You, you have, have a friend of me. Yeah. I have actually, this. I feel like if this hasn't happened to you, you're really, really lucky and you have the right people in your life. But um, I do feel like this has happened often to me. Like I've been in situations where um, like my ideas are made to seem not good enough or my contributions are made to seem not good enough. And then like a couple of weeks later, my ideas are stolen and used as if they were the other person's or um, there's constant like passive aggressive comments about uh, 
you know, strength or how you like your appearance or how your business is doing. Um, this is, I feel like this happens a lot and I don't know if it's more specific to women. I do feel like there are some, there are a lot of men that are that way too. They can get kind of passive aggressive and egotistical. So, um, I have experienced it often and generally, honestly, how I deal with that is I usually end up cutting that person off. Um, I do set a pretty strict boundary. I'm a, I'm kind of like a one chance type of person. I had this conversation with, um, right. My friend Rachel the other day who I will give generally give one chance because people mess up. They get, you know, they react out of, um, anger, fear, sadness, whatever, and they react. So I generally give someone one chance if they've done something that I feel like is bad or off-putting and then if they do it again that generally shows me that that's kind of their true colors and that's who they are so at that point is when I will set that hard boundary and I either like don't let that person affect my life anymore I don't let them in um I you know stop expending any sort of energy going back to like the focusing on what matters that we talked about Mm -hmm. earlier and that's that it does not bother me if someone is not adding any value to my life and I have to cut them off. That does not make me sad because it adds they, value. <laughs> you're getting rid of the negativity. Exactly. Yeah. I'm removing that sort of toxic environment, friendship, whatever it is. And it improves everything else. When you remove that sort of toxicity from your life, um, later on in the messages, you mentioned that she mentioned that she, uh, set those hard boundaries to not allow that person in. And I'm like, that's, that's exactly what you have to do yeah. is you have to set those hard boundaries and be like, you know, I'm not really interested in your opinion on what I'm doing, what, what I'm doing with my life. That has nothing to do with that person. Um, if they are constantly making you feel bad about yourself, you don't need it. Yeah. I mean, uh, I'm not as harsh yet. I'll give you two chances, but <laughs> I minimize from friend to acquaintance. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I mean by that is they don't need to know the personal details of my life. I don't mm-hmm. care to listen to the personal details of their life. You are hundred percent correct. That's coming from their own insecurities. As you are succeeding, they're feeling bad about what they are not doing and trying to knock you down a peg to feel better about themselves. And a friend mm-hmm. wouldn't do that. Um, a friend wants to elevate you. A friend wants to elevate you or bring you with if you're succeeding. So, you know, and, and that's probably what they're hoping for is as you're elevating that you'll encourage them and feed off of your energy, which can be draining to you as well. So I will usually minimize someone from that friend role to the acquaintance role, which means every time I see one of their posts, I just click a courtesy like so they know I care and I acknowledge them. But at the same time, I'm not asking personal details. I'm not giving personal details. I'm not giving them my energy per se so they can do that to me. So you're allowing someone to do that to you if you're giving them these details and they're making you feel bad about it. Yeah. You have to be stronger within yourself and just not tell them these things. Uh, we, well, I always joke about it. There's people who I talk to who just like, I don't even know what to say to them except for, you know, how's the weather over there? Because like, I don't want to talk to them about my life at all because that's what they do. <laughs> yeah. You don't want to give people like any information about you that they can use against you basically if that's how, if that's the type of person they are. Yeah. Okay. Um, next question is from Jared Simmons, T-Rex Powerlifting. He said, we have certified judges, gear that has to be approved, weights that are calibrated, so why aren't spotters certified or approved at meets? This is a great question. Mm-hmm. And for those of you who don't know, it's an interesting video. If you go to T-Rex Powerlifting, you'll actually see the video. Uh, Jared walked out of squat in a meet in wraps and the spotters all had their hands down and the back spotter was four feet away from him. And as soon as he walked back, he fell back with the bar. Not a single person caught him. Yeah. And so we'd actually had a previous question before about why we're paying membership fees to organizations and stuff like that. We talked about because they put on the equipment, they have the meets, they have the rules, the refs, the judges. Um, If you are a spotter in a meet, you accept the responsibility for that lifter, Mm -hmm. which means you may necessarily put yourself in harm's way. It's happened. 
uh, Michael Walker, who's a, a great spotter, back this spotter in Florida, he, he caught the 900 plus pound de uh, squat bar from Andrew House when it slipped off his shoulder and, you know, it bruised his bicep up. He was okay, but he stayed with the lifter. Mm -hmm. If you, that's the, when we've gone to meets and I've been responsible for helping organize or run or, or judge, the first thing I go to is go to the back spotters. Have you guys back spotted before? Mm -hmm. Do you know how to stay with the bar? Do you know how to stay with the lifter? This is especially important. And I've actually put up a lifter before talking about where the back spotter should be. You know, I hate the hands over bullshit because you're not the pinch grip champion of the world. You're not saving that bar. You're not saving the lifter. You need to be underneath that bar at any time. So whether you're a side spotter or a back spotter, it is important that we get more information on spotting and spotting technique out there so we can protect the lifter because that's why we're in that meet. So we feel safe because the equipment is good. The staff is good and everything is official. Um, I agree with him that we should have a little bit more education on how to spot and load. Uh, loading is obviously just counting, but how to spot the lifter for their safety because that is one of the reasons why you're paying a meat fee. Yep. And that falls on the meat director to make sure that the spotters and loaders he has is trained in how to spot. Mm -hmm. So if you have a lifter, and I know Matt just joined, but if you have a lifter who's in wraps and it's a walkout, you need to have a step with them every time you're there because that's the most common thing that happens is somebody who's in wraps loses balance. Yep. That's one of the reasons why we have the mono so they don't have to walk that out and that's that's the case. So if you're a back spotter or a side spotter, you stay under the bar at all times. Even if you're just walking that bar out, you stay with it. So that's that's a good point. Yeah, I mean, Jared, Jared was like, you know, I should have been a little bit more controlled as a lifter and like, sure, you can always be more controlled as the lifter and obviously whatever, but like freak accidents happen like, like Andrew House, you know, he's yeah. strong as hell, but there was, there's a, like when you make a minor error, a minor movement error with 900 plus pounds or whatever it is your max is on your back, like that's a possibility that that's coming off your back. And like, that can be very scary. That could have crushed him. That could have crushed Andrew. It could have crushed Jared. Um, but yeah, I mean, sure, be more stable as a lifter or whatever, but I do agree that the spotters are there for a reason. Like you're not just there for decoration you're there to actually help the lifter out of um the walkout or out of the mono and stay with them yeah um so i don't know about i don't know how we would go about uh certifying spotters necessarily but probably being more prepared rather than asking on the day of the meet hey who's available for spotting, spotting and loading loaders, yeah. like that's i whenever i hear that i'm always like oh great <laughs> shout out to some of the meet directors who i've seen will go up to the spotters and loaders and he will usually or she will make sure they understand what it means to spot and load and how to do it yeah. I've, I've been to meets where i've seen the meet director take the time to show them here's where i want you on the side yeah here's where i want you in the back so not all meet directors drop the ball here but sometimes that does happen we had a question from Sejul. Do you consider yourself a better coach or a better athlete? What's close to your heart? Ooh. Um, everybody wants to be the best athlete they can. I've done well as a lifter. I've done incredibly better as a coach. I have six different athletes that have achieved all-time world records across all federations. Um, that's pretty unheard of outside of like Josh Bryant and Dan Green, I think, and, and Shaco who've done that same thing. So I'm in like really great company there. Um, but as a lifter, I've done well. And if I didn't coach, I probably could do better. However, I find the end of the day, it more gratifying to me to see somebody else get the result than myself. Um, don't get me wrong. It'll frustrate the shit out of me if I have a bad training day, or if I have a bad meet, I'm about to have a terrible one. I'm accepting that because I just, life got in the way of, of training at the moment. Um, so I've accepted I'm not going to be my best in five weeks but I'm still gonna be in the meet because I think when you look for the back door and you quit, you quit that much faster. And that's what makes a great athlete and a great coach. 
no matter how tough it gets, you run towards the fire and you're leaning into the fear and you're accepting whatever the outcome is and you learn from it. Whether you're an athlete or a coach, you have to learn from those tough days, those bad days, and not avoid them and hide them. Do you see a single NFL player not show up on Sunday because they didn't think they were ready from bad practice on Thursday? No. You know why? Because they're paid to be there, but they're the best athletes in the world. You don't see it. But you'll see it in powerlifting all the time. Oh, I'm not going to hit a PR, so I'm just going to pull out of the meet. Bitch, please. I don't care if that's the case. If you're not going to have a good meet, so what? Go there, test yourself, see what you're made of, learn from it, and improve. Yes, this is a volunteer sport. No one's paying you to do it. But if you back out of a meet because you're not going to be stronger than you were the last meet, that means your mindset is weak, not your body. And that's probably why you haven't gotten stronger because your mindset is weak. You have to toughen up your mental capacity and realize there's going to be bad days. Mm -hmm. The first year or two, you get strong fast. Year three, year four, and if you're lucky enough to make it to year five without quitting from burnout, it gets really, really slow. Really slow, especially at the top level. So you better be in this to work hard and persevere and push through because I got news for you. At my age, I can tell you life is 10 times harder than the platform. And you have to have that same mindset with life as well, that no matter how tough life gets, you're strong enough to withstand it, learn from it, and overcome it. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, I see this a lot with uh, with like beginner lifters. They're like, well, I want to go nine for nine, and I want to hit all PRs on my first meet. And I'm like, well, generally, most you know first-time meets, that's what you do. That's generally what you do. Um, things happen and whatever. But it's, uh, it's actually kind of appalling to me how many people will – pull out of meets because of like some inconvenience like they they were like oh i had a had a tough week this week so i don't think i'm gonna be feeling that great so i'm just gonna drop out of the meet it like it really is incredibly weak-minded to me you signed up for this meet for a reason and if you do worse then you do worse and you accept that and it's probably realistically in that case it's probably on you why you did worse because you get the work that you put in like you you get the result from the work that you put in so whatever work that you put in during that off season or during your prep or whatever that's what you earned. That's what you earned. So you get that's, what you uh, earned. that's exactly yeah. it. Um, Zach said, you know, being at your best all time isn't realistic. Showing up is and hundred yeah. percent. And then Isaiah is like, aren't you like 29? No dude, I'm 41. Um, <laughs> right after the showdown meet, I'll be 42. Yeah. Um, I think that personally, I think that I have more room to grow as an athlete, but I think I definitely care about the coaching aspect more. Um, like you mentioned, it's more gratifying to me when someone else hits a PR. Like when I hit a PR, I'm, you know, I'm stoked about it, but I'm like, all right, cool. What's next? When a lifter hits a PR, I'm like, oh my God, that's amazing. You know, like, uh, so I'm really, really excited about that. I definitely think that I have more room to grow as an athlete. Um, but I think all in all, if I had to rank them, I care about coaching more than I care about my own, um, athletics, I guess. Like I'm still going to obviously always put in the work. I'm still going to compete and whatever, at whatever level that I can and still push myself. But it, the coaching aspect definitely outweighs my own personal, um, lifting. I think it's, it's a lot, it's a lot harder to get someone to buy into that workload and that effort and that Mm -hmm. process. And then when they progress and they hit their goals, it's very gratifying to help somebody else hit their goals. Of course it's gratifying to hit your own goals, Mm -hmm. but if you're doing the work, you kind of expect that. Um, But when you're responsible for other people and parenting teaches you this, you know, when you you have kids and you're responsible for their development, their grades, they're staying in and out of trouble, making good choices. 
there's a lot more at stake. So when you're working with someone as a coach, you take on their responsibility and there's a lot more at stake. So it becomes that much more gratifying when they do well. It's also like the emotional fatigue that we talked about earlier too, you know, as a coach, when you're, when you have athletes and like, there'll be some days where 30 to 40 of our athletes have a bad day. And like, we kind of have to brunt that process of them, you know, feeling bad about themselves. Like we get the messages. We're like, today sucked. Everything sucked. This is rough. And like, while we're not necessarily going to take on all their emotions, it does drain you a little emotionally, which is why like before our training, we try to minimize as much like, uh, other people's feelings as possible. You know, like he doesn't get on social media until after. Don't touch it. Um, I don't want to know about it. I generally try. I honestly generally try not to watch any like uh, videos until after training either for that same reason, because if I know that someone has a negative attitude, it's probably going to weigh on me into my training session and being five weeks out ish, five weeks out ish this weekend. Um, I don't need any sort of emotional, I don't need any more emotional fatigue. I already have enough of my own right now. (laughs) So It, it can be very emotionally fatiguing when you're opening up 15 messages that have a negative connotation and people had a bad day or their life is stressful and they're telling you about it. Um, you just have to be able to bear that brunt with them yeah. and support them in any way possible. And sometimes that's as simple as modifying their program. Yep. Other times it's as simple as just listening. Mm-hmm. Uh, I try not to cross the line of advising because I'm not the expert in that field and I'm not the person they should come to with that when it comes to whatever issues they're having, unless it's revolving around their training or affecting their training, that's where I'll step in. But it is a lot more gratifying to help someone than it is to help yourself. Hundred percent agree with that. Um, let's see. So this is from Tweezy. Uh, oh, this was a long question that came from the, the about off-season hypertrophy work. Yeah. So um, he said your blocks normally follow an accelerated block periodization template, which lends itself to actively gauging progress on a frequent and relatable basis. How and when would you go about programming a client for a strictly hypertrophy block, say deep off season, or just wanted to focus muscle for later potentiation? If this is not an approach you would implement because of other reasons, say accessories cover enough muscle building, what are those reasons? This is a great question because of the myth of power building. Um, Obviously, strength is a skill and it's very, very specific and it's dependent upon the said principle, specific adaptations to impose demands. So, you know, doing sets of 20 rep dumbbell presses might give you a hell of a chest pump and it might help your chest appear bigger, but it's probably not going to help your one rep max bench so much. And there's a little bit of a misnomer that muscle size is creating more potential for strength. Yes, a bigger cross-sectional area does have a more potential for strength, but not if if it's sarcoplasmic hypertrophy as opposed to uh, the actual myofibular. It's a little complex. Sarcoplasmic means you've created more size or appearance based off cell volume by pumping more blood in there, pumping more fluid in there so it appears and looks bigger, which is the pump, which is the swelling, which is why bodybuilders do that before stage. They look bigger in photos than they do in real life because they have the pump going on and so forth. Uh, Pump size doesn't indicate strength size. Mm -hmm. We need that cross-sectional area to increase from myofibular density. And that's probably going to happen more in a rep range of somewhere between three and eight repetitions. So true hypertrophy work for the main muscles involved with powerlifting isn't going to help the potential max strength down the line. That's a little bit of a misnomer because people generalize that. Um, That being said, there are times where somebody is very, very burnt out, fatigued, Mm -hmm. or extremely deconditioned where those types of programming blocks help. They can help as a reintro if someone's coming back from an injury and they need to recondition, build kinesthetic awareness, build work capacity, 
all those things can be used and at certain times it happens. Right now, case in point, I have several lifters coming back from COVID. It's hard, but a great time for them to do low load work for higher repetitions to rebuild that work capacity, allow that muscle to fill back out and then get back to the heavier lifting and so forth. Would I do it for someone to make them stronger in the long run? No. I will on the opposing muscle groups because a bigger swollen back is going to help your bench press. A bigger, stronger back is gonna help you create a shelf for your squat bar and so forth. Um, one of the best examples of that is um, Ben, um, why am I dropping his last name? PH deadlift, Pollock. Pollock yeah. Ben Pollock talking about how much easier it is to hold the squat bar now that he has rear delts. Yeah. So the rear delts aren't helping him in any way as far as moving the bar, but they are helping him hold the bar. So. That's one of the reasons why your accessory work is generally done in bodybuilding like percentages to build more muscle size, to create more of a supporting structure, but it's not moving the weight, it's holding the weight. The only, I personally would never use a full hypertrophy block, I guess, unless it was like for a specific reason, like mm -hmm. a burnout, you know, or injury recovery, whatever. But for a general person, I would, I don't, I would not spend four to five weeks or four to six weeks in a hypertrophy rep range. Um, Post meet the first two weeks back, I generally have that hypertrophy rep range just to get them reconditioned because the whole your whole peak you've been deconditioning yourself. So you get that conditioning back with like the first two weeks, and that's generally how long it takes for an adaptation is about two weeks. So two weeks of hypertrophy, and then get back to the strength ranges. And like I know with like your accelerated block um, type of setup that you have, and I have that sort of similar setup for some people where the first week will be more hypertrophy rep mm -hmm. ranges to keep that some level of conditioning in the off season. Because if you're someone who can only do sets of two, like your conditioning kind of sucks. You should be, you should be able to do sets of five or six because that is a building rep range and you do need to be within that strength rep range of like four to seven reps. Yeah. Um, you should be able to complete sets at that. So if anything, I think in general, like a quote unquote off season training, I'm probably only going to include one week of hypertrophy and then like true hypertrophy. Yeah. yeah like eight to 12 reps. Right. Work, yeah. And then, um, for, for more main work. And then, you know, like I have two bench days that I generally program. Maybe that second bench day is a little bit higher rep focused, but the main bench day is in the strength or peaking ranges. So I kind of toggle it that way. Um, but I think that more time spent in the strength ranges and then having your accessories um, in the quote-unquote hypertrophy ranges is more beneficial for most people. Because if you're only ever practicing 10 to 12 reps, it's going to be very, very hard to hit singles for like a squat or a bench or a deadlift. Yep. Get unfamiliar with the process of, which is, you know, there are studies showing that hitting singles more frequently in training helps with the meat and so forth because you get used to that in practicing. So that's why I like the mixed bag of mm -hmm. rep ranges, you know. High, higher rep ranges to me is like eight with the competition list mm -hmm. versus lower rep ranges is like one to three. So I like to mix them up in that accelerated block style. And sometimes I like just putting undulating, I'm sorry, um, uh, inverted volume in there where yep. somebody might be doing six sets of three uh, instead of three by six because they can move that with a lot of force and a lot of speed and they get precision and they get skill work. You know, that's six first reps as opposed to three first reps. Yep, absolutely. I like the inverted volume. I think that um, like I noticed for more of my conventional pullers, they end up getting more inverted volume because if you're like a pretty low back, heavy, yeah. uh, conventional puller, it's hard to pull six to eight reps. Especially <laughs> with the conventional deadlift yeah. because that's what happens is the form breaks down. It gets ugly and there's no point in that. We don't want to encourage form breakdown. We want to encourage, encourage good position, starting tension with the deadlift and the whole nine. Conventional deadlift is one of the best ways to do inverted volume. Yep. Um, okay. So we got some questions from your Q and A. Um, I guess I'll ask some of these ones that you haven't already answered. I have a comp in six weeks. Haven't low bar squatted because my shoulder, any suggestions? I like this. 
Um, I haven't low bar squatted either because if my hip's not letting me, it's stuck in internal rotation in the hole. I've just been doing high bar squats and I switched to the heels. And like I said in the beginning of this podcast, I'm just going to eat it. That's what it is. It's an experience. It's something to teach me to it. I'm training around it. If I manage to get down to my normal comp placement and my flat shoes instead of heels, great. If I don't, I'm going to find out how high and how strong my high bar and heels is. And I'm going to use that to build and go from there. Um, one of the ways around that obviously is specialty bar, you know, the SSB, the Cambridge bar, the Duffalo bar and so forth. So if you have that option to train around it and you can, great. I have seen people literally who had issues. I know Wyatt's having an issue right now. He's working with Joe. I'm, I'm not sure what Joe's program with him was, this, but I've had athletes have the same issue where low bar was killing their elbows and their bench. And I didn't have them take any low bar work until three weeks out from the meeting. It was just high bar SSB work or specialty bar work. And I literally just had them do their heaviest lifts low bar. Believe it or not, it's not that hard to ingrain a low bar pattern. It really isn't. It's very, you very simple. Forget. You don't forget how to do this. Um, as long as you're practicing something that is mechanically similar, the strength is there. Yep. So if you're practicing a high bar, if you're practicing an SSB, the strength is there. But outside of that, I would obviously work on whatever rehabilitation you need to for your shoulder or whatever mobility you need to for your shoulder. Find out what's going to benefit you there because that's going to get you back to your bar placement as fast as possible. Like I'm working on my hip every day to get it back there and it's improved, but it's not there yet. So I'm not pushing. I'm not forcing myself into my complex and I'm not forcing myself into the flat shoes. I'm giving myself any training stimulus I can until I can get to where I comfortably can do my competition squat. Yeah, I have a I have a client who's going to compete in April, and the first block that we worked together, I had uh, the first block I wanted to see like what his comp movements look like, so I had him doing a comp squat, and after three weeks, um, he had terrible elbow tendonitis, so he's going to high bar squat probably all the way until his meet, and like me knowing that he can last about three weeks before his elbow tendonitis like kicks in pretty bad, that means that I can peak him for three weeks with a low bar and then give him recovery, but up until like before the meet, but then up until then he'll be high bar SSB because it's still gonna build a squat, it's still gonna build a pattern, um, but it won't be tearing him down to the point where he can't grip the bar anymore, he can't bench press anymore, anything like that. So you don't you don't forget how to low bar. So I think it's okay. Fred Hatfield is the best example of this. We have the SSB because of Fred Hatfield. He mm -hmm. literally invented the bar. It actually was first called the Hatfield bar, where the handles are in front because he knew the low bar squat beat up his shoulders and elbows, so he didn't do it. Um, he's passed now, but if you've ever been lucky enough to been to a seminar, he talks about that often. He never did the straight bar until literally four weeks out from a competition. Mm -hmm. It was Hatfield bar, or now we know it as the SSB. It was the SSB bar every single training session, sometimes known as the Hatfield squat, where he'd hold onto the racks in the whole nine so he can overload his legs instead of putting his single ply suit on the whole nine. And he would only switch to the straight bar about four weeks out. Mm -hmm. That's how long it would take him to get used to it. So he'd have three heavy squats with a straight bar, yep. and that was it. He was an all-time world record holder. He squatted 1,042, uh, 1,048 at 42 years old. Hey, I'm almost there. Uh, he squatted 1,048 at 42 years old, which at the time was the all-time world record for the squat. And if he can do that and break the all-time world record, I don't understand why people think they have to low bar squat three times a week every week. Yeah. And then they complain about their elbows and their shoulders. Well, whose fault is it? Yours. But then they don't want to not low bar squat because they can't take the ego yeah. hit. Yeah, they can't take the <laughs> ego hit. Well, if your low bar squat is so much more than your high bar squat, you should probably build a deficit in the high bar squat and get stronger. Yep. Uh, I just want to touch on this real quick. Isaiah, so you're saying during an off-season phase right after me, you still wouldn't do anything past eight reps on the main list? No. Not quite. <laughs> we're saying during regular training phases and preps, there's no point in going beyond that. But like Riley said, post meet, we're usually looking to pick up an athlete's conditioning. Mm -hmm. So they might be doing the lifts for higher reps just to pick up their conditioning. Once they're reconditioned, we go to the more traditional rep ranges. So like the first two weeks for squats, I may have them do um, 
eight to 10 reps in like the regular, high, like a high bar squat or mm -hmm. something. Um, week three, I would probably switch to like the strength ranges. Maybe I'll drop it down to like six, but their secondary movement, maybe that's a belt squat or maybe that's a trap bar or front squat or something. That one, I generally keep higher rep ranges for the most part, unless I have a specific reason not to. But if their comp squat is in the strength rep ranges and their secondary movement is, we'll say belt squat, I'll generally keep the belt squat somewhere between eight to 12 reps too. So that way they're getting the volume on their legs. So it's not that they're never doing eight reps uh, post me or whatever it is that you said, but it's not helping you with your one rep max. Right. It's not for an entire block. Yeah. It's a week or two to recondition and then you move on to the more traditional block work. Yep. Um, okay. So how to water cut properly? Lots of conflicting info. <laughs> I would be remiss if I didn't tell you not to do it. If you are not experienced with a water cut or don't know how to do it properly, chances are you shouldn't do it. Now I always talk about this is when you're going to learn how to do a water cut, you don't do it the week of your meet if you've never done it before. If you're inexperienced with it, you want to practice it in an off season when it doesn't matter and it's not going to affect your training, maybe before a deload week to see how you can, how much you deplete, how hard the process is for you. Is it something you want to do and how fast you can rehydrate and come back up? That's a mistake most people make is they never practice the actual cut itself to get an idea of how it feels and how they recomp. I have athletes who can't recomp at all, so they don't cut. And I have athletes who can drop 20 pounds and recomp like it never happened. It's an individual thing. Um, I have done as much as a 19.8 pound water cut and my recomp wasn't fantastic. And I have done small ones where it's like two to three and like, like my one out of eight cuts usually not very big. It's just a water manipulation, uh, a few pounds and that's not a problem. But when I would go 81 recomp wasn't so hot without a significant amount of IVs and the whole nine and 10 weeks of dieting and, and the whole nine. Um, so first of all, understand that a water cut is just that it is not a weight cut. Mm -hmm. You're not going to be, restricting calories so hard that you're going to do that and then diet down as well because you're going to lose strength and you're going to lose muscle mass if you're living in a deficit that's too big and too great and too long you're basically shooting yourself in the foot when you do that the water manipulation itself should just be to encourage your water water uh, your body to flush out as much water and poop people forget that as much water as poop as possible um, our muscles can be 70 to 80 percent water so what we're encouraging ourselves to do is to deplete and flatten out and the way we typically do that is by both water loading, sodium loading, and carbohydrate loading. And then when our body's got all this abundance of water and it's holding too much, it raises aldosterone, which is a hormone that helps regulate fluid in the body. And the aldosterone has a diuretic effect and pushes the water out of the body. So that, at that point, we cut out the carbohydrates, we cut out the sodium, and we still increase plain water without minerals. Like that's why people use distilled water to encourage the body to keep flushing out that water. Some people can swing as much as seven or eight pounds, depending on how big you are. I've seen people do 10 pound swings when they're 300 pounds for water cuts. Um, mine traditionally, I like somewhere between three to five, depending on how bloated I am, uh, of water manipulation. I've seen smaller lifters who do a water load and depletion and only lose one or two pounds because they weigh 148 pounds or they weigh 150 pounds. So it's size dependent how much your body will swing with water retention and how much you hold. Um, uh, your body can hold anywhere from three to five pounds of poop, which is why a lot of lifters about two days out from weigh-ins will drink magnesium citrate because it flushes out the colon so you can get rid of any extra fecal matter. And when you are also doing that depletion phase, you should not have any fiber if you could help it. Use as little fiber as possible because the fiber is bulk that's gonna hold in your colon and hold fluid. So at that point, a lot of people will eliminate as much fiber as possible, trying to not have any bulk fluid in their colon. So you're gonna get probably somewhere between a, a four to eight pound swing just from the water manipulation and the poop manipulation. 
But the most important aspect of the water cut is the, the recomp. recomp. <laughs> you yeah. have to understand what you've done to your body. Yeah. You've flushed water out. You've flushed out electrolytes. You've flushed out carbohydrates. So your priority isn't just to drink water. People are like, oh, I'm drinking water like crazy. Now you have to hold that fluid and create a yep. little bit of a bloating effect. So you have to sodium load after you've, after you've weighed in. You have to carbohydrate load. And because you don't have a lot of fiber in your body and you've gone without fluid, your stomach shrinks down. You can't eat anything you want because some of it's going to be very, very painful. If you eat a very high-fat meal or a very high-fiber meal, it's going to hurt because there's no fluid in your stomach to, to work on peristalsis, which is you know breaking those things down. So the first thing you do the first hour is you start to add liquids and sodium. Like Some people will use... Um, Propel, some Pedialyte. people use Pedialyte, <laughs> diluted Gatorade. And when I say diluted, because a bunch of sugar like that rushes to your system that's not prepared for it, could make you very uncomfortable. Yes. They start getting stomach cramps or they start getting you know the runs. And you don't want that because that's never gonna end by the meat time. So you have to start slow. You wanna start with a small amount of sodium, a small amount of carbohydrate, which is why Pedialyte works. I think it's only like one or two grams of carbohydrate mm -hmm. per, per like eight ounces. And uh, then you start building from there. Once you start getting some fluid back in your body, then you want to start with rapidly and easily absorbed carbohydrate sources. Um, rice is one of the best. Mm -hmm. So you can use like dry rice krispies and stuff like that. Uh, it's not a time for a lot of fat. It's not a time for a lot of fiber. It's not the time to go have bacon and eggs right after you've weighed in. That's really going to hurt you. Uh, you have to make sure that you replenish the minerals as well. So one of the first things I do when I start drinking that first thing of water is I'll start taking mineral and electrolyte supplements so they can get into my system as they break down and expand and I start getting things in the carbohydrates. So generally, some people can hold between like three and 400 grams of carbohydrates in their liver and their muscle mass. So you have to make sure that you're getting more than 400 grams a day for the carbohydrates. You have to make sure you're getting probably more than two grams for the day of sodium, which shouldn't be that hard if you're taking enough sodium. Uh, you probably wanna aim more for like six to eight because you flushed it all out of your body. You have to make sure that you replenish your amount of calcium and magnesium, which are responsible for muscle contraction and relaxation and all those things. So that's where almost everybody goes wrong is they think, okay, I've made weight, the recon. let's party. Yeah, people binge out on like pizza and donuts and all the things that they haven't had on prep and they absolutely go fucking insane and then they regret they have, it. Yeah, and they have a bad day and they feel terrible the whole day. They get the shits. Yep. And then they can't do anything and that's not going to end. So there's another thing you want to do. Sorry, this is gross. Every meal, well not every meal, but like every like three times that day, pop an emodium pill. You don't want to get the shits when you're recomping. You don't want to have the shits on meat day because it's not going to go well. You kind of want that bloat. So take a little bit of emodium to help you because if you flush your system out, and then you screw the recomp back up, it's going to reflush again. You at least want that blow for squats, and you want it to usually dissipate by the time you get to deadlifts. You don't want it for deadlifts, yeah. So I always tell people, meat day, the biggest meal should be breakfast, so you have the squat belly, mm -hmm. and then graze and trickle throughout the day because that bloated belly for deadlifts is in the way. Feels awful. <laughs> it feels terrible. All right, I don't want to make sure I don't miss anything. I think we're uh, coming in on the wrapping up, too, because we got to go. All right, let's get one more question. One more question. All right. Uh, best recovery for rest days. Rest. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we like walking. That's about as high as we'll probably go on a rest day. Yeah. Walking, walking is definitely one of my favorites. It's very low scale. Mm -hmm. It's great for recovery. It lowers stress to the body unless you're walking in traffic, in which case good on you. I enjoy to live dangerously too. But, you know, slow, controlled walking. And I say slow, controlled. It's not the time for a power walk. It's not the time for a jog, really. I love when people are like... 
I think I'm gonna take I think I'm gonna take a hike on my rest day, and then they wonder why their lifts are awful the next day. And I'm like, well, you didn't I hike the four thousand feet elevation. I'm like, well, you didn't rest at all, so no wonder your lifts feel like shit. And they're like, man, I'm really fatigued this block. And I'm like, yeah, because you haven't taken a single goddamn rest day. Understand what rest is. Yeah. Rest is recuperation. Mm-hmm. So what activities help you recuperate? Watch a funny movie. Mm-hmm. Laughing help. Laughing helps lower cortisol levels. Take a nap. Read a book, go for a slow walk, have a picnic, enjoy your wife, whatever. Anything that's gonna help you minimize as much stress as possible. Yep. Rest day is not the day to go do your taxes. <laughs> it is not the day to move. It's not the day to uh, go see your in-laws who you hate and so forth. That's not restful. So if you're getting close, I, I, don't, I barely ever see my in-laws. Uh, living in the burbs has its perks. But if you want to consider rest day rest, you have to do as little as actually stressful work as possible. So your best rest day is the day where you can do as little as possible, do things that make you happy, that you enjoy, or that make you um, feel good about yourself. Uh, Ladies are going to love me for this one. Go shopping. Retail therapy is a great way to feel good. It releases endorphins. You lower cortisol. You're going to feel good. You're going to try dresses on or whatever. Guys, you can go do it too. I'm a shoeaholic, so I buy shoes on my rest day. But you know, things that make you generally feel good are what you want to do on your rest day. So if you've been putting things off that are for you, rest day is the day to do them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we like walking. We watch movies like every, well, I guess Sunday isn't our rest day, but like Saturday, Saturday is sleep is a sleep sleep in pajama day. Sleep in pajama day. So like we'll generally <laughs> sleep in and then we wear our pajamas for majority of the day until we have to like get up and do something. Uh, we'll watch a movie, just kind of like hang out, relax, and like those things feel good. We take a walk, and those are things that help us decompress. Uh, yeah. And if you don't have laser cat eye pajamas and pineapple short pajamas and Friday the 13th pajamas, you don't even have You pajamas. also have the unicorn ones. I do have a unicorn pajamas. I wasn't going to let all my secrets out. <laughs> well, they're mine too because we Just share. Just like pajamas. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So that's episode 23. Thank you guys for dropping questions on here. Remember the podcast comes out on Monday. Make sure you share the podcast, leave a five-star review, support Culture Nutra, which is why we get to do this for free for y'all and answer your questions and spend time. So Culture Nutra, go on there and read the bio. It's worth your time to read the bio, I promise you, on Culture Nutra website. So read the bio, enjoy this. And I think someone just gave her like a protein waffle pancake recipe that she enjoyed, so she'll post that soon. That'll be a fun one. And um, I'm such a mark for America right now. American flag, American white pop. America. America. (laughs) Bye, guys. Bye.